Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of the Red Light Report. And the expert on today's episode is Dr. Jason Saunders. He is a hyperbaric oxygen therapy expert, and he's always been fascinated by the machinery of the human frame and strives to learn everything and anything he can that might help even one of his patients. Always working to integrate new knowledge and practical experience, in addition to his doctor of chiropractic, he earned his diplomat of the Chiropractic Board of Clinical Nutrition and his diplomat of International Board of Applied Kinesiology. Also, Dr. Saunders is one of only 250 professionals in the world with this distinction. He is currently enrolled at the University of Miami School of Medicine, earning his PhD in molecular biology with a concentration in regenerative medicine. Dr. Saunders utilizes his combined training in various modalities to create comprehensive programs and help patients achieve their health goals. His patients are dealing with, among other conditions, a variety of autoimmune and neurological conditions, allergies, autism, and cancer. Jason combines chiropractic, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, nutrition, exercise, detoxification programs, and more to naturally support patients and guide them through their challenges. Also, Jason has released a book last year entitled Oxygen Under Pressure, Using hyperbaric oxygen to restore health, reduce inflammation, reverse aging, and revolutionize healthcare, which I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about in this episode. Without further ado, Jason, appreciate your time. Welcome to the Red Light Report. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And uh, obviously, you know, I love to talk about this stuff. So, um, you know, I would love an open dialogue. Ask me anything you want. And however we can put it together for your listeners uh, would be great. Happy to contribute. Absolutely. You got it. Well, let's just start off with kind of your origin story as far as how you got into hyperbaric. Of course, reading through your book, I, I know some of the answers, but just tell the audience how, how you got into it and really how you've become a force of nature in this treatment modality. So yeah, the summary would be, I herniated a disc early on in practice. And as a chiropractor, that's not great for business. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't able to work. I was pretty much laid up for a bit and uh, I was getting worked on. As you said, my background is in exercise physiology and then clinical nutrition. So, you know, as far as I knew, between chiropractic, I was getting acupuncture massage, I was eating right, I was taking natural anti-inflammatories, I was doing my exercises. My back pain got better very quickly uh, and I was back to work, but I was left with a right-sided neuropathy, a full drop foot on my right side for, for many months after the fact. Um, pretty much didn't know what to do. I was like 25 or 26 at the time. And I figured at that point, a year and a half later, I still had that drop foot. That was just, that was like the new normal for me. Uh, and then I basically stumbled upon hyperbaric at a conference completely um, by accident. It just looked cool. So I tried it. And uh, sure enough, I actually started getting like pins and needles in my foot. And I hadn't felt that foot in about a year and a half. And so right away, I was thinking, you know, how did that tool actually help me feel my foot? After a few sessions and, you know, maybe 10 or 15% improvement that weekend, I bought a chamber. I was like, this is the first thing that even touched my foot in a year and a half. I uh, treated myself for a couple months and then I, you know, I had basically a full recovery. So at that point, 
I was excited to have my leg back, but I was I was pretty frustrated with the idea that I had thought that I had gone through a lot of school. I did a lot of postgraduate work, a lot of research, and I got that far in my life without anyone ever mentioning hyperbaric or, or even recommending it for the neuropathy that I had. And so from there, I just started to incorporate it into practice. A couple of my more difficult patients, some MS uh, patients, a post-stroke patient, and each time we introduced it, we saw massive changes. And so I, I started to get very interested in the science behind it. And then as it grew, as it grew in my clinic, people would say, hey, you know, I'd love to be able to, my aunt has neuropathy, my cousin has MS, you know, do you know anybody in such and such a state that might be able to help? And we would look somebody up and we wouldn't be able to find anything. And so I realized, you know, as much as we were starting to use the tool, it still wasn't being utilized out there too much in, in general practice. So, you know, we've basically spent the last handful of years really trying to educate, you know, the public, trying to educate doctors, you know, offer training and certification programs for technicians and practitioners. Our goal is to just really increase the awareness, increase the utilization so that patients are really getting more and more access to this tool because it, it's it's just one of those things that helps so many different conditions. Early on in COVID, wasn't hyperbaric, what we'll call HBOT from here on out, um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, wasn't HBOT touted as one of the better treatments for COVID because every time you get in the chamber, you boost the immune system, correct? Yeah. So in any other time in the world, when people could speak freely about ideas on improving their health, Hyperbaric is, and this is non this moment is non-controversial. Uh, hyperbaric is known to improve white blood cell activation. And so our initial response to an infection, especially a virus, would be white blood cells attacking that virus. So we know that hyperbaric helps that for sure. Hyperbaric was also used in 1918 for the, the flu of 1918. Hyperbaric was used successfully in certain pockets uh, in America as a treatment for that infection. And what we knew early on with COVID patients was they seemed to be losing oxygen saturation, yet not necessarily because they were having trouble breathing. It was that they were having trouble with gas exchange. And I'm from New Jersey. So, you know, by me in New York, when things got really hairy early on, you know, somewhere around 86, I think 87% of folks on a ventilator ended up passing away. And so it didn't seem that uh, the standard ventilator option was really what was going to be effective. And so groups of people around the world in the US and in Spain and France and Brazil, Germany, started looking at hyperbaric as an option. The biggest difference is, you know, hyperbaric is not forcing your lung expansion. So it allows you to breathe normally, but it's pressurizing the air that you're breathing, which just changes the percentage that you're able to absorb. And so if these patients weren't having breathing issues, they were having oxygen diffusion issues. Theoretically, hyperbaric should or could or would help that. There were a few case studies early on in the process that looked very favorable. There's currently a handful of studies, one in New York, one in Louisiana, one in Brazil, one in Israel, and I think one in France, all ongoing right now as potential looking at hyperbaric for acute COVID. Uh, since then, obviously, I'm sure you've seen or heard or, or in touch with people who are dealing with the long-term COVID issues, much of which seems to be inflammatory-based and neurologic-based. And again, because hyperbaric tends to have this positive effect on inflammation, 
and this positive effect on nerve-related issues, you know, we're seeing positive results on the use of hyperbaric for some of these longer standing uh, post-COVID issues. And there's a, a few research studies that are also just starting out now on that same topic. That makes sense. Well, without going down too many rabbit holes yet, let's define for the audience, uh, for those who aren't familiar with hyperbaric or HBOT, what is it? Why is it so special and why can it help with so many different things? So, you know, hyperbaric is one of these things that I say, I say this often when I'm teaching the courses, it's not a cure-all. In fact, it doesn't really cure anything by itself. And while it doesn't really cure anything, it helps an unbelievable amount of different issues. And the real simple answer to that is every single cell in your body requires oxygen. Right now, you're getting almost as much oxygen as you could possibly get. If you put a pulse oximeter on your finger, we're going to be 97 to 99% saturated with oxygen, which means you only have room for another one or two percent. It's not, it's not much. That's not going to be very meaningful in terms of your health or your life or recovery from any issues. If we can change the way oxygen is absorbed and create a surplus of oxygen, we can now get a meaningful amount of extra, if you will, extra oxygen into our body. And then the body with that will be able to do whatever the body needs to do with that surplus of oxygen. But because we're already basically 100% saturated, the only way to increase the amount of oxygen would be to change the dynamic that allows us to absorb it in the first place. So right now I'm at, I live in New Jersey, I'm at sea level. Sea level, I have an atmosphere, it's called one atmosphere of pressure. And that atmosphere of pressure, that pressure of my environment is what allows me to absorb oxygen right now, even when I'm breathing it. We all know that if we go to altitude, we have a harder time breathing. And that's not because there's less oxygen. That's what people usually say. That's kind of the way we, we say it, but that's not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is we're losing pressure. So as you go up in elevation, pressure is decreasing. As pressure is decreasing, oxygen molecules are moving further apart. So when I breathe in, I'm breathing in less oxygen, actual molecules, which doesn't allow me to absorb as much. As I go back down to sea level, those molecules start getting closer together that allows me to normalize where I am here. If I go below sea level, those molecules get even closer and closer together. The pressure goes up even higher. And now all of a sudden I'm able to absorb much more oxygen than I can, let's say right now at sea level. And so what we're doing with hyperbaric is we're mimicking below sea level pressures. And as we mimic below sea level pressures, we're able to massively increase the oxygen absorption. Just to give a few numbers, like I said, right now at the surface, if I had 100% oxygen that I was breathing, maybe I have between one and 3% more that I could get. In a hyperbaric chamber, in a very simple setup, let's say 1.3 atmospheres uh, and you were just breathing regular air, you're looking at almost a 30% increase in oxygen. Instead of one to 3%, it's like 30%. And then as you increase the amount of pressure and or increase the percentage of oxygen from there, you can just keep stepping that up. So, you know, at two atmospheres at 100% oxygen, you could be looking not at 30% increase, you could be looking at a about a 12 to 15 times more oxygen than what we're getting right now. So, I mean, that's an enormous amount. And then of course, there's, a, you know, a thousand variations in between those two extremes. But, you know, that's how we create this, this massive surplus of oxygen. And then, like I said, the body will do with that oxygen, whatever it needs to, whether it's heal, recover, activate the immune system, reduce inflammation, all the different things that hyperbaric does. 
Gotcha. And so the pressure helps to fuse that into the plasma, thus your body's more able or readily able to use the extra oxygen. Whereas when you said before, increasing it by one or two percent is not going to make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, just yeah, to clarify that right now, your red blood cells are carrying almost all of that oxygen. So there's a very, very little bit of oxygen in the plasma and 99% of it is, is saturated to those red blood cells. But as you increase the pressure, you're literally filling that pl the plasma with oxygen, bypassing the red blood cell carrying capacity altogether. There was a study, I think it was in the 1940s or early 50s. It was called Life Without Blood. And what they did, what they took these, um, we, we would never be able to repeat this again, but they took um, pigs and they literally drained their entire amount of blood. They replaced the volume of blood with like a saline solution so that there was a volume of blood to circulate. And they put the pigs at three atmospheres of pressure and at three atmospheres of pressure with zero red blood cells, the pigs were completely fine. And then they, you know, reinfused their red blood cells back in and then brought them back down from pressure. And again, they were totally fine. So the point is, is that free floating oxygen is, is very meaningful and the body will certainly be able to utilize it if we this can create podcast that scenario for, for us. And so on top of the benefits you mentioned, like anti-inflammatory, you help your mitochondria, anti-aging, what are the other primary physiological benefits of HBOT? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot, again, because most of the chemistry in our body is energy dependent. In other words, our body makes that stuff called ATP, right? ATP is the unit, the energy currency of the body. And the majority of biochemistry is not downhill. It's our body has to synthesize different chemicals and it uses ATP to do that. So right out of the gate, when the body's exposed to more oxygen, what happens is the mitochondria that are in charge of making that energy, they become more efficient, they become bigger, and they actually start to multiply. And so as mitochondria get more efficient, get bigger and multiply, you now have little engines whose job it is, is to make energy. You have, you know, more efficient, stronger, and more engines producing energy. And so as soon as that part happens, and that's one of the, that would be considered, I would say, one of the short-term benefits of hyperbaric, right out of the gate, every single cell. So let's just simplify life. Let's say your liver's in charge of detoxification. As the liver can produce more energy, it could detoxify better. Let's say your brain is in charge of communication. As your brain cells, your neurons are getting more oxygen and making more ATP, you can have better, faster, more consistent brain activation. Your intestines have to absorb nutrients. Again, they become more efficient and more productive. So every cell type, every tissue type, as it produces more energy, starts to function better. So in, in general, with the short-term benefits of hyperbaric, we just start to see upregulation of many different cell types, many different tissue types because the energy activation of the body is going up, the efficiency and the productivity of the body starts to improve. Then we shift into some of the more long-term benefits, and that's kind of what you were starting to talk about, like immune system activation, uh, stem cell release. Hyperbaric is very anabolic. So we get a lot of growth factor releases, like platelet-derived growth factor, insulin-like growth factor, VEGF, BDNF, you know, brain-derived growth factor. So all of these growth factors that stimulate skin repair, fibroblasts, collagen, nerve repair, mitochondria repair, cell membrane repair, DNA repair, epigenetic repair, 
these cascades of cell signaling that stimulate a lot of these longer term and most of the longer term benefits live within this repair, recovery and regeneration type model. So that beckons the question, is more better when it comes to atmospheric pressure and frequency of treatment. So what does that look like if someone's trying to recover from the cold or the flu or a virus versus someone who's doing it for anti-aging versus um, athletic performance and so on and so forth? There's a lot in there. Number one, more is not necessarily better. As a good American, most of us think that, right? If a little is good, then more must be better. And this is some of the research that I'm trying to do right now, because I think that there are, there are folks that are using lower pressure hyperbarics that are claiming to have an effect that they might not really be having based on the fact that the science we have is all based on higher pressure. We can't necessarily say that we know that the lower pressure does that. At the same time, I think that we're using higher pressure on some cases that didn't need higher pressure. They would have done just as good or better at lower pressure. And now we're over oxidizing them and overexposing them to more oxygen and more oxidation than they needed for whatever the goal is. And so I do believe there's a, you know, more or less a sweet spot. Certain things respond better on the lower end of the spectrum. Certain things respond better on the higher end of that spectrum. And we're working, we have some ideas on a lot of the good ones, but we're working to really delineate, you know, which systems work better at which pressures. And then, you know, we share those protocols with a lot of other practitioners so that, you know, overall we're getting better and more consistent results, you know, in the clinic. With regard to frequency and duration, I would say that once upon a time, we might say, hey, there's no difference between doing, let's say, uh, three hours a day in one lump sum versus three one-hour sessions three times a day. And now I would say that it's looking like that's not true. It looks like there's two parts to hyperbaric benefit. Part number one is the total dosage of oxygen, which is measurable. What was the pressure? What was the percentage of oxygen? How many minutes were you there? And with that calculation, we could figure out like a total amount of oxygen exposure. So because it's measurable and maybe because it's more simple, that's what people have focused on for all these years. I'd say in the last two years or so, people are starting to now really look more at this cell signaling cascade. And the cell signaling cascade doesn't seem to be affected by the total dosage of oxygen the person's exposed to, that seems to be much more how often, how frequent, how many times did a person go up and down? And so the more often a person gets goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, that seems to be much more stimulating to the, the cascade of events that leads to all those growth, all the growth factor repair and the things that I was talking about. I would say that seems to have a greater result on frequency uh, than on duration. You know, that being said, when we're working on protocols with practitioners or patients, there's a range of pressure, a range of oxygen, and a range of of time period over the course of weeks and months. And then based on a lot of factors you and I were talking about, because there's not enough clinics, there are people who are traveling very far. And if I wanted somebody to finish their protocol so that they could get some of the benefits, and I make it too impossible for them to get to me then they're not going to get any of the benefits and then nobody wins. So there are still times where I might suggest longer sessions less often just to make sure that the person can get in and at least get through a 20 hour or 40 hour program. But if all things were equal, 
and you lived, you know, a patient lived next door to me and it didn't matter, I would have them come more frequently daily, in some cases, double sessions in a day with space in between uh, in order to really stimulate as many of the systems as we can if possible. Interesting. So, so the concept of these people that sleep in their chambers or spend these longer durations, hours and hours and hours at one single time, you're saying if that's all you can do, that's great, but it's better to split them up and kind of get that uh, sinus wave, that more exposure on a more frequent basis versus one lump sum. Exactly. Right. If, if that person spent four hours in the chamber, as an example, you know, overnight or something, and we could measure all of their body's responses and somebody else did, even if they did less one hour, twice a day. So only two hours in the chamber, but, but more frequent shifts of pressure up and down. I think that we would see that the person who had the frequency would get better results than the person that had duration. This podcast interview was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com. That's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com. Or you can also find it on biolite.shop. That's biolite.shop. What is the general uh, pressure that you're using for, if you can share it with us, you know, pressures that people are using when they're recovering from inflammatory conditions versus general health and wellness versus anti-aging? What's the typical, you know, range for the, for the pressure? And I guess on top of that, are you using ambient air or are you increasing the oxygen level in the chamber? Uh, so to go backwards on that one, pretty consistently across the board, we're using some amount of enriched oxygen. If you were to look at a curve, like in one of the slides that I use when I teach, if you were to just look at a curve plotted and you could see ambient air, which is 21% oxygen, and you saw that at, at sea level and then at 1 ATA, 2 ATA, 3 you know, there's a linear increase in oxygen absorption as pressure goes up. If you plot that same curve and you add, I'll just use 100% as an example, 100% oxygen in each of those points, that curve becomes exponential. And so anytime the whole system only works because of pressure, in other words, if you stay at the pressure you're used to, if I stay at sea level and I have 100% oxygen, it's really not that meaningful. But as soon as I increase the, pre the pressure some amount, and then I add enriched oxygen, those two are, are not linear. They're literally exponential in their effect. So pretty consistently, we're using enriched oxygen. There have been times where we didn't, and there's certain conditions where you may not. 
And overall for general well-being and general health, you know, 30% more oxygen or whatever it is, 27 to 28% more oxygen is very meaningful. And so, you know, that could be enough for a lot of people in the clinical setting when you're really dealing with, you know, a whole variety of health issues, the extra oxygen could become very meaningful. And then with regard to which pressures, it, it also varies a lot. Here's a way to answer that. When a practitioner asks me, which equipment should they get? Should they get a soft chamber? Should they get a hard chamber? Should they use air only? Should they use enriched oxygen? My questions for them are always, who are your patients and who are you trying to help? Because we know that as an example, we use two and a half atmospheres of pressure with 100% oxygen for gas gangrene. I mean, that's like a life-threatening and a limb-threatening condition. So we have to match the intensity of the therapy to the severity of the condition. So if you have gangrene, you sort of want the most pressure you can get and the highest percentage of oxygen, more is better in that case. A slightly different variety, people use it for mold. In its own way, mold is anaerobic and there could certainly be benefits of using hyperbaric both as a toxin inhibitor and as well as uh, antimicrobial. But the mold is not going to be as life-threatening or limb-threatening as the gangrene. And therefore, the intensity of the therapy could likely still be very effective at lower pressures. Do we have 15 different double-blind controlled randomized studies to show that? No. But if hyperbaric helps anaerobic illness, and these are anaerobic and these are anaerobic, and we know that it helps over here, it's reasonable to think that it could also help over here. And we could probably bring those pressures down. So a lot of people might treat that at, you know, 1.3 or 1.5 atmospheres instead of 2.5 atmospheres. TBI and concussion, those types of issues seem to work better. Some of the neurologic issues seem to work better at lower pressures, that 1.3 to 1.5. But certain severe autoimmune conditions like Crohn's and colitis with, you know, ulcerations and fistulas, those we might go to higher pressure. So, you know, it, it really runs the gamut of, you know, again, matching the right tool to the right condition, number one. And then number two, what do you have access to? In other words, maybe the idea is, you know, you should be getting two atmospheres at 100% oxygen, and yet you have no access to that. Still, unfortunately, there aren't enough people doing it but you could have access to, let's say a 1.3. Is some amount of hyperbaric better than zero hyperbaric? In most cases, yeah, absolutely. In which case you would have to do a lot more frequency and probably longer duration both to make up for the loss of pressure, but you could still expect some benefits because oxygen is still oxygen. Especially with me being into red light therapy and that's kind of what this podcast is predicated on, all about red light therapy and mitochondrial health. If a person wanted to use hyperbaric on a persistent basis for anti-aging and boosting their mitochondrial health, given that they're healthy otherwise, I'm guessing, you know, based on what you just said, it's going to be a uh, lower atmospheric pressure at a lower oxygen, or would you still use 100 oxygen? What would that look like just for anti-aging purposes and wanting to boost the mitochondria? Yeah, I, I'd say in that case, you could you could use both. You would get a little bit more out of it faster if you had enriched oxygen, but I don't necessarily think it's it's a requirement. So we have two different clinics, and between both clinics, we have 
six hard chambers that could do high pressure at hundred percent. And we have two soft chambers that could do, you know, the lower pressure with or without enriched oxygen. And then we help other patients get chambers at home or doctors get chambers. And my clinic is only two miles from my house, but in my house, I have a soft chamber. So I only use the lower pressure end of things. And sometimes I use a concentrator and sometimes I don't use a concentrator. You know, it really just depends. My initial usage of hyperbaric back when I first got hurt and I was first introduced to hyperbaric, that was at 1.3 atmospheres, air only. I did that whole treatment. It was just air, 21% oxygen at 4.2 PSI. And I had that response to my neuropathy. So could that have healed faster if I had access to higher pressure or higher oxygen? Maybe that's reasonable, but did I still have a full recovery of my drop foot? Yeah. So, you know, again, that, I think that's, that says a lot that's meaningful. On the flip side, you know, we're talking about how many things hyperbaric can help with how safe is it really? Cause we're dealing with high pressure. What do you allow people to take into the chamber do you allow cell phones and you know electronics like that? And then secondly, um, what conditions is hyperbaric not helpful for? Is, is it helpful for cancer? Is it not helpful for uh, other list of uh, maladies? So the list of things that it helps with is really long. And you know, there's over 100 to 150 internationally recognized indications for hyperbaric. In the U.S., you know, as far as insurance is concerned, that list is only 14 conditions long. But for folks like me who don't use hyperbaric for any of the traditional approved indications anyway, we specialize in sort of that 100 to 150 other indications. And that list is long, again, because so much of it has to do with the anabolic effect, the, re- the, the healing and the recovery and the, the decrease of inflammation. Most of chronic illnesses today are somehow summarized between chronic inflammation, immune system issues, metabolic issues, and you know mitochondrial dysfunction. And so, you know, hyperbaric helps those four areas pretty specifically. And so that's why there's so many different potential indications to use it for. The only people who absolutely cannot go in a hyperbaric chamber, there's two absolute contraindications. One is pneumothorax, so literally like a popped lung. And then the other one is if you can't clear your ears. So if you can't clear your ears when the pressure is changing, just like you would when you're scuba diving, just like you have to do on an airplane, if you cannot equalize, you cannot dive. And so those are the only two absolute contraindications. Other than that, there's a list of about 14 other relative contraindications that exist. And that has to do with certain blood disorders and certain cancers and certain uh, cardiovascular or respiratory conditions, because you do need to make sure that this person is safe. So those aren't absolute contraindications, but you need to know that these people have these conditions and is it safe for them to lay down? Are they going to get good oxygenation? And are they on certain medications that might create a problem for them? So, you know, there's a whole sort of uh, clearing process that we would go through in the clinic just to make sure that that we know that they're safe. Also, uh, certain implantable medical devices, Uh, especially these days, most of those are built to tolerate pressure based on whether they're going to scuba dive or whether they're going to go in an airplane or change in altitudes. So most of them are designed to tolerate pressure. Some of the older ones might not be. And so we, you know, if somebody has an implanted medical device, you know, we have to have them check with their manufacturer to make sure that 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 unit can tolerate pressure. 
the, the thing about devices, and it's it's just confusing and misleading, but in general, not bringing things in is the right choice to make. And that's not because of fire explosions. So I want to make that clearer. If you're in a 100% oxygen environment, like a standard hard chamber, like in a hospital setting, and there is so much as a spark of any kind, static cling, you know, static electricity spark, that chamber could explode. That's very dangerous. There is zero tolerance for anything to happen. You have to change your clothes. You have to wear 100% cotton. Uh, you cannot bring anything into the chamber. The chamber has to be grounded. The patient has to be grounded. There's a whole series of uh, things that are re required to happen in that environment. In a multi-place chamber, which is more like a chamber the way we would run them, those are filled with air. So they're filled with 21% oxygen. And then uh, you might be piping in you know, some enriched oxygen environment. But if you were to measure the oxygen in the chamber, it should never go above 23.5% oxygen, which would keep the, the potential for something like an explosion much lower. As a result, in a multi-place chamber, there are certain electronic things that could be inside that chamber that can't be inside a 100% oxygen environment chamber. That being said, there's a history of potential issues that have happened and they're, hyperbaric is inherently safe. It's been used for decades. People are doing it every day and they're doing it in a way that I might not even improve every day and they're still very, very safe tools, but they need to be respected because of the oxygen, okay? And so the issue is that even in a lower oxygen environment, you're still enclosed in a place that you can't get out of right away. In other words, I'm in a room right now, if there was a fire, I could just open the door and run out. If you're in a chamber and there's a fire, you can't just open the door and get out. You're in an enclosed space. And so for that reason alone, having something in there that could have a problem. In other words, when you fly on an airplane now, they say to you, I need you to check your bag. Do you have any lithium batteries, e-cigarettes, whatever the list is? Because they don't want you putting lithium batteries underneath the plane, because God forbid there was a fire, nobody would know about it. So you have to take those out and bring them with you. Now, it's still kind of silly because if you had a problem inside the plane, you still have a pretty big problem. But back in the day, especially let's say when smartphones were first coming out, we heard, true or false, you've heard of a few iPhones or you know smartphones catching fire on the airplane. Why? Because when pressure changes on these devices, the battery heats up. People noticed, my phone is hotter on the airplane than it is when I'm not on the airplane. And that's about pressure changes. So my point is, are they safe and people are doing it? Maybe. Is that a great idea? You're still enclosed in a thing that you can't get out of. And God forbid something happened, you know, it could be a really terrible day. And so for that reason, my recommendation would be to to really limit the amount of that type of exposure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know that was a really long answer for that question. But <laughs> I want to make sure yeah. we're clear about it. A lot of good points there. Better to be safe than sorry when it's all said and done. So I know you you are really interested in gut health and in the microbiome as it relates to hyperbaric. So tell us some information on that. Is there some new research or revelations about hyperbaric healing the gut? 
So there's one study coming out of Kentucky, I think, soon, hopefully, looking at this specifically a little bit more. There's not a whole lot of studies on this as it as it stands in this moment. But the way we look at it, similar to what I was saying about infections and anaerobes earlier, the idea would be that most of the probiotics, most of the good bacteria in our body are either aerobic, meaning they like oxygen, or they're at least oxygen tolerant. They could be exposed to higher oxygen levels and they're fine with it one way or another. Most pathogens, most of the of the bacteria that cause us grief that can create infections for us are anaerobic. And in many cases, most, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are are familiar with the term biofilm. And so these anaerobic bacteria seem to, you know, create a, a layer of, I'll just call it slime, you know, but a layer of protection over the bacteria so that the bacteria could really remain in a very low or almost zero oxygen environment while it's thriving you know, and feeding off of whether it's intestine or food that you're eating or whatever else. Hyperbaric is is well described to number one, become a antibiotic synergist. In other words, if you had a terrible infection and required antibiotics and the antibiotics are starting to become ineffective as they often do over time, there's a combination of hyperbaric plus antibiotics that seems to be very effective. So there's a synergy there. And one of the reasons for that synergy is because the oxygen environment weakens the pathogen, potentially kills the pathogen also. The other side of that is it seems as though uh, hyperbaric oxygen helps to break down those biofilms. And as we break down those biofilms, now we could start making sure that that pathogen is now being exposed to your immune system or being exposed to some other therapy that you're utilizing to clear that up. So on a whole. And I would just summarize, you know, unfortunately, the the average human walking around this planet might not be the healthiest specimen of of the uh, human race. And so the thing with that is that we're generally more inflamed than we probably should be. We, We are generally mildly hypoxic in many ways due to trauma, due to toxicity, due to inflammation, you know, many of our areas of our body can start to become just relatively hypoxic. So as you expose this gut to a higher level of oxygen, as that oxygen starts to improve the environment of the gut, aerobes and probiotics have more likely environment to thrive and start to do well. And these anaerobic pathogens start to get exposed to an environment that weakens them and or potentially helps to kill them. And that can start to shift the entire bacterial or microbiology of your gut into a direction of further health. You know, ultimately, you know, I would, I would say that the gut bacteria is a reflection of the environment of the gut. As we improve the gut in many different ways through diet, through certain supplements, through hyperbaric, through other means, as the environment improves its health, the bacteria that live there start to change automatically rather than traditionally we think like, kill the bug, kill the bug. You know, many times the bug is there because the environment allows it to be there. And as we can shift that environment, we can change the entire landscape of the microbiome, you know, just that way alone. So hyperbaric is one of those things that seems like that you may be going in to improve your pain levels, or you may be going in to improve energy or your athletic performance. But every time you get in, you're getting the benefits of everything, correct? So 
Um, that's kind of one of the beauties I think of hyperbaric is you're going to go fix your pain, but you're also going to boost your immune system. You're going to help your mitochondrial health. Apparently you're going to help your gut health and on and on and on. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not, you know, I say this to a lot of people, and this is one of the reasons why it's great relationships to have with uh, hyperbaric clinics in your area. If you're practicing hyperbaric, because even in these traditional settings where they're treating gangrene and neuropathy from diabetes or whatever it is, patients come in, they're like, I know I'm coming in for this wound, but I can't tell you, I haven't been this focused or my headaches are going away, or I had this other thing and it's getting better. You know, so people who deal with hyperbaric patients, like technicians who deal with patients, they see what you're describing. They see that, you know, wide variety of improvement. And so they love hyperbaric and, and making relationships with people who do what would be considered less traditional hyperbaric. Those are great relationships to have from a referral basis. Because it's not like we can, I can't say, well, we're going to do hyperbaric, but we're going to stick it in your elbow, right? Or we're going to stick it in your knee. It's in order for this to work, the only way that this works, you have to be in a pressurized environment. You have to breathe the gas, the air or the oxygen, whatever you want to call it. You have to breathe those gases at pressure. That pressure creates this increased absorption. And now that it's in your body, it's going to go everywhere. And so in almost all cases, somebody comes in for X, Y, or Z, but they start to see other changes that they weren't necessarily expecting. Also, sometimes people come in and they think this is the thing I want to get better, but you know, these three things get better first. You know, we can't choose where it goes. We can't choose which things get better and we can't choose which order they're going to get better. All we can really do is supply the body with this increased oxygen level and allow the body to do with that oxygen, what it wants to do with that oxygen. And so it's a very, um, from that standpoint, it's a very holistic, you know, whole, very vitalistic type therapy. Yeah. It's like, oh, shucks, I'm going to get the systemic benefits. Like you said, <laughs> instead of just isolating. Yeah, people say like, are there any, are there, are there a lot of, you know, side effects or consequences? I'm like, there's a lot of side benefits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> things that you're going to change for the better, but yeah, there's really not a lot of, uh, very, very, very few side effects. With hyperbaric, it's not like you're going to improve your endogenous stem cell production on the first visit. It takes potentially dozens of visits before you see that significant increase in endogenous production in, in stem cells. And likewise, I, I read or heard somewhere that they're finding that um, when you stack many hyperbaric treatments in a short period of time, I think this said uh, 60 treatments within 90 days, you can actually increase the length of your telomeres, which are kind of the end caps on your DNA. So the longer your telomeres, in theory, the longer you'll live, the shorter your telomeres, you know, the shorter your, your lifespan is going to be. The point being, it takes a certain amount of time before you see these endogenous or anti-aging benefits. So can you go through a couple of those for the audience? Like how many does it take to see a significant increase in growth hormone? Or how many does it take to see an increase in your stem cell production? So that's a great question. And we're still basically in the infancy of that research. And, you know, hopefully the the, the research that we're beginning in a couple of months, we're going to be looking exactly at that and trying to say, you know, at different amounts of pressure over different periods of time of all these benefits that everybody keeps talking about, at when does what change occur, right? That's kind of the big question. I get that question every day. The full answer to that question is I don't know. And nobody else does either. But what we do is we extrapolate out from the research that we have currently. And I hope to be able to add to that research soon to be a lot more specific, to answer that question more directly. 
What we know is from a handful of the stem cell studies that exist, if you did a pre, here's my baseline stem cell production right now, and I do 20 to 30 sessions of hyperbaric, it's going to be almost the same as it was pre. And then once you get closer to like 40 to 60 hours, that's where you start to see that increase. And there've been a few studies to say, well, after 40 to 60 hours, I get that increase. I now stop the hyperbaric treatment and measure again a month later, it still goes up. In other words, there's a delay in how long it takes for that process to start to begin. But even once you pull the therapy, there's a continuation. Once you, once you set that in motion, you start to see a continuation of those things in motion. Well, that's pretty cool. Not only do you not lose the benefit, because that's the question I get a lot is when I stop hyperbaric, am I going to lose the benefits that I've gained? But what you're saying is not only do you not lose it, you're actually getting that delayed response. And so you might actually see improvements uh, later on. Right. Yeah. And, And that's true in most protocols that we've seen where you do a protocol and you purposefully stop because you know that even though you're stopping the therapy, there's a continuation of improvement. And then once you stop that for three or four weeks or six weeks, depending on what thing we're talking about, we can then assess, okay, now we can see the full value of what you did. Are we going to continue? Do we need another protocol? Are we going to go into maintenance mode? You know, all those things. But, you know, it's like the gym. It's what you want to do to make certain gains. If you went to the gym once a month, you'll never make those gains. You know, but if you make a certain amount of gains that you were trying to, you go three times a week for this period, you get these certain levels that you, you know, you start, you don't need to continue to go to the gym three times a week to maintain those gains. Same thing with weight loss. What you need to do to lose 50 pounds is not the same thing you need to do to maintain the 50 pound loss. And so with these things, you know, I would equate that to the same. It's here's what I had to do in order to stimulate this process. And now what I want to do to maintain that benefit in contrast to what I needed to do to get those changes to occur, those are very different. And so there's oftentimes more of like a maintenance mode type of protocol to follow once you've made the changes you were trying to make. With regard to the telomeres, yeah, there was a study that came out last year. It was a great study. Again, part of the the research that we're about to embark on is to try to uh, recreate parts of that study and reproduce it just to add validity to that story because that's a meaningful piece. We don't fully know. We know that we know that people that are sicker, more inflamed, more oxidized, more stressed are probably going to live a shorter life. And we also know that those people tend to have shorter telomeres. We don't know for sure that longer telomeres means it's anti-aging necessarily, but it seems to go, you know, it's the opposite of short telomeres. There seems to be an improvement there. It certainly means that those cells have a greater capacity to replicate. So the cellular life should be longer and should be more accurate. Uh, and then we're going to, we're adding a couple layers to that research, looking at the aging or anti-aging or not really the regenerative quality. I like that as a better term, the regenerative quality of hyperbaric as to yes, does it increase telomere length, but telomere length is really a symptom potentially of these other factors that go on in our physiology. And if we could reverse those factors, that's regeneration. And as a result of that regeneration, we could see things like cell membrane differences, epigenetic differences, genetic differences, telomere differences, et cetera. So that's what we hope to be able to look at in the next year or so. Gotcha. That's going to be some exciting research uh, to see what kind of results you guys get. Let's talk about different stacks that you can potentially do with hyperbaric, especially with you, you know, doing your PhD in molecular biology with a specialization in regenerative medicine. And we kind of talked about this before recording like with red light therapy or cold thermogenesis or even um, like fasting or specific diets, what are certain stacks people can do 
with hyperbaric and what are the benefits? Yeah. So, you know, I go back to probably not a blanket, just do this, right? It's like, even when you're relatively healthy and you're not necessarily, you're not sick, you don't have a condition, you're not treating anything. You're just trying to optimize your version of optimization and my version of optimization based on the lives that we've lived and the decisions that we've made and other things, you know, maybe before getting into all these things, it's going to play a role in which pieces of all this are going to be more meaningful, let's say for one person versus another person. But I would say that there's great synergy specifically, there's great synergy between diet in particular for folks that are doing, you know, different versions of what we'll say fat burning, whether that's through generally reducing their carbohydrate intake, where they're doing some sort of ketogenic diet, or they're tinkering with uh, variations of fasting. When you look at hyperbaric, hyperbaric, because it's anabolic, hyperbaric upregulates your fat burning. So if you were to measure, you know, respiratory quotient, how much oxygen are you pulling in? How much carbon dioxide are you letting go of? You would see that as a result of mitochondria efficiency going up, more mitochondria, all the things we were talking about earlier, the mitochondria have a preference to burn fat when they're exposed to that. So if you're already doing a metabolic therapy that's pushing the body in that direction, and you add something like hyperbaric to that, that'll have a very magnifying effect. Now, in some cases, they look at that as unwanted. In other words, we know that if you're a raging diabetic that's uncontrolled, and you go to two and a half atmospheres in a hyperbaric chamber, you could definitely go hypoglycemic during that session. Hyperbaric increases your sensitivity to insulin. And so little bits of insulin have huge effects inside that chamber, which in my world, that's a benefit of hyperbaric. I can now use this tool to help educate a person with diabetes how to better expose themselves and how to have how to require less insulin for the same effect, right? And then we can further balance their glucose levels through diet and everything else. In a traditional model, they look at that as a negative. And so they might give patient diabetic patients, you know, a blast of juice or a candy before they go in to get that glucose spike. So that if they crash, they started high enough, they're not actually going to end up hypoglycemic in the chamber. But the point of all that is to say hyperbaric has a very strong metabolic effect. And so I love the synergy between certain fasting techniques or certain dietary techniques mixed with hyperbaric. The other one that I see an enormous benefit with would be red light and hyperbaric. And so, you know, between red light, I don't have a picture with me, but you know, for folks that are into mitochondrial health and electron transport chain and the whole bit, there are certain steps of the electron transport chain that lead, that's, that's the last step leading to ATP formation. And so what we know is you have to, you have to electron transport chain, you're transporting electrons down a chain uh, from higher energy to lower energy. So things go down its concentration gradient. And then there are certain rate limiting steps to that process. So in order to pass electrons from, let's, I'm just gonna simplify it, from point number one to point number two, you need a thing called uh, CoQ10, okay? So CoQ10 is a nutrient, some people take it. If you don't, you should consider it, but CoQ10 is, it's called a mobile carrier. And CoQ10 ping pongs from, let's say complex number one to complex number three, and it requires a sufficient amount of CoQ10 to get that electron down that chain. The next is from complex three to complex four. And there's another mobile carrier. That mobile carrier is called cytochrome C. And one of the most amazing benefits from red light therapy 
is stimulation of cytochrome C. And so all of a sudden, you know, if we had sufficient CoQ10, we can send electrons over here. If we have uh, sufficient cytochrome C activity, we can send electrons here. And then the very last step in ATP production is the use of oxygen. And so oxygen becomes the next rate limiting step. And so if you just zoomed in and looked at the electron transport chain and had sufficient CoQ10, sufficient red light for cytochrome C and sufficient oxygen, you've now eliminated all three rate limiting steps from the process of ATP production. If you took that a step further from the beginning and said, well, in order to even get to complex number one, ultimately we need a thing called NAD. And all of your food, carbohydrates or fat, basically are trying to get reduced into this thing called NAD, sometimes FADH2, but you know, this NAD, and now we have, you know, whether we're doing NAD IVs or we're using NMR or NR, you know, different supplementation pathways of increasing NAD. So if you strictly were interested in upregulating, you know, cell function and energy function, and you dumped in some you know, NAD or NAD precursors, you had some CoQ10, you had some red light, and you upregulated your oxygen, you've literally stimulated, or you could say eliminated every pathway for ATP production. And now you're just going to start cranking out that ATP at a pretty high rate. And again, the thing about ATP, which I love about hyperbaric, but all these therapies, once you upregulate systemic ATP, all your systems start to work better. So whether it's your brain or your liver or your intestines or your immune system, whatever we're talking about, as it gets more energy, it upregulates that entire system. And so there's, there's a far more than just that electron transport chain, but that's kind of a, I don't know if it's easy, but it's sort of an easy way to understand how these pieces come together to really stack, to really make an impact on cell function. No, that was a really good um, explanation of how all those can help the oxygen, the the different supplements or, or nutrients, and then the red light. But like you're saying, energy is life. And the lack of energy or the more deficient you are in energy, the closer you are getting to death or the more disease or the more health Dysfun- can yeah, Dysfunction at best, but yeah. death and disease are not far from, yeah. Yeah. And I always preach, you know, treating the mitochondria. I mean, like you said, there's mitochondria in every single cell except red blood cells. So when you're treating the mitochondria and you're optimizing those, you're virtually optimizing your entire body because they're everywhere. But the question specific with red light therapy that I get a lot, and I guess I'm also curious about is when you're going to stack red light therapy with hyperbaric, and maybe you're even in a facet state, like you said, so you're going to get even more synergism if you're looking for fat loss or weight loss. But do you do red light therapy before or after hyperbaric? Because we know that red light therapy causes vasodilation with NO or nitric oxide release, but hyperbaric inherently is a vasoconstrictor. So which one do you do first, the vasoconstrictor or the vasodilator? Yeah. So big picture, if you had access to both modalities and you're basically 10 years later, you've consistently used both modalities. I would probably tell you, I'm not convinced that we could definitely say this one had to go first, this one had to go second. However, the vasoconstriction, you know, some people are interested in using carbon dioxide because it's a vasodilator. And this is a long story that we won't get into, but when you get to higher pressure and higher percentages of oxygen, there's a reason, and it's for your brain's sake, there's a reason that we have vasoconstriction and it's important, okay? But as long as you're not going to two atmospheres or above at 100% oxygen, you're staying sort of in the mild to moderate pressure ranges, you know, with some amount of enriched oxygen. I love the vasodilation effect 
and I will use that. So I will do red light therapy, get the nitric oxide dump, get the vasodilation, then go into the chamber because now I'm basically all my hoses are wide open and now I'm dumping all this excess oxygen. We have a free flowing event, right? So my preference in most cases, especially early on when we're dealing with certain issues, really trying to upregulate the system and get the most out of it, red light first, hyperbaric second for sure. Gotcha. That's what I would have guessed. But like I said, I wasn't quite sure. And like you said, maybe in the long run, if you're doing them both consistently, maybe it doesn't really matter as long as you are doing them both. If you were really sick and you were getting very high percentages of oxygen and very high percentages of or pressures, and you were trying to get the benefits of red light, I would actually reverse that. I would put them after the fact because I don't want that vasodilation. Gotcha. Yep. That makes sense. So there's, again, it's, it's case by case, but well, Jason, how do you use hyperbaric on yourself um, nowadays? So for the most part, I get that question a lot. Uh, for the most part, basically, I do about one hour a week. By the way, I mean, you're, I've been doing hyperbaric for 14 years. Okay. So I've gone through, let's just say, a few different protocols. <laughs> My general maintenance is that I do about an hour a week. Usually that's soft chamber because it's just easier for me to do that at home. And then quarterly, I go through a 20 to 30 hour program and I mix and match just depending on my time frames and what I'm, you know, what I have time to do, what I'm available to do. But I might do 90 minutes to two hours a day, usually broken up if I can double sessions, let's say five to seven days a week for, you know, six to eight weeks. So I do a big blast like that. And then I go into a maintenance mode of, you know, an hour a week, three or four times a month. Basically, I do that, that larger blast. And I see significant, I mean, it's with my workouts, with my recovery, with my stress levels, with my quality of sleep. Anytime I go through my deeper, bigger protocols, my first thought is, why don't I do this more often? You know, and then I realize it's because, you know, life and time and, you know, we travel a lot and the whole bit, but that's basically my routine. Interesting. And that's just, you're in good health. You're not trying to treat anything. That's just kind of, exactly. I mean, again, I do. So I fast, you know, so I'll usually when I go through, so I do a long fast every quarter. So I match my long fast somewhere in that 20 to 30 hour protocol, right? I do red light a lot <laughs> whenever I can. And so I, just my opinion so far and what I'm seeing with myself and patients, once you get a lot of the long-term hyperbaric benefits, I don't see that it takes that amount of effort to maintain them. A lot of the red light changes, at least the ones that I see show up in my life, a lot of those feel shorter term, meaning I feel like I do that a little bit more often because those little boosts seem to make a big deal for me on a regular basis. And they're also typically shorter sessions. So, you know, the red light that I do is usually you know, maybe let's just call it a 20 minute session. And so I'll do, you know, 20 minute session two or three times a week, pretty consistently as a maintenance dose, even compared to the hyperbaric. Yep. That makes sense. Well, Jason, I really appreciate your time and all your answers, man. I've learned a lot and I know the audience has as well. Where can people go to learn more from you and more about you other than, you know, your oxygen under pressure book, which is a fantastic source for anyone interested um, along with your website. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the, the book is great. It was written for anyone from like a potential patient to a clinician just to really understand sort of the background and how it works, why it works, and just to kind of wrap our head around that. 
our main website, hbotusa.com. You know, we have a pretty decent amount of information on that too. And we're starting to build out more and more, not so much just general information, but also in like blog format. So that's starting to build out a little bit more. We have another website called the hbotcourse.com, which is really where we're starting to advertise. We've been, we've been doing these courses now for a while and now certain courses are actually uh, becoming uh, certification courses for practitioners and technicians. So for professionals learning more and really trying to build a business around it, there's a, you know, a good amount of information in, in the HBOT course. And then uh, we have a YouTube channel. It's just HBOT USA, just like everything else. Uh, and we have over 120 videos on all different, whether it's research topics or case studies or uh, other podcasts, different things that we did. So there's a pretty good amount of information on, on, uh, on that channel for people to learn. And then, of course, any one of those means, there's access to me. My, my email is uh, drjasonsaunders at hbotusa.com. Um, but you know, people always have questions, always have, want to know a little bit more and I'm always happy to help in any way that I can. Awesome. Jason. Appreciate it, man. Everyone go check him out, check out his book, check out his website, YouTube certification course, if you're professional and, and so on and so forth. But Jason, man, appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, keep up the great work, keep putting out the great information and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch some sometime soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, for everyone, this is Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off another episode of the Red Light Report. You guys have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.